If I work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, I could will myself to success. And that could be true. It's not that it's a false statement. The thing is, I would say that you can get away with that for a period of time, but your body keeps score. Your mental health keeps score. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hello, everyone. We are happy to have our next guest, Brian Whitland. Brian is the CEO of Yumly, where he drives a strategic vision for the company. He has helped grow Yumly to over 27 million registered users, designed and launched the Yumly mobile apps, and led a successful acquisition by the Whirlpool Corporation. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. It's really exciting to have you here with us today. Thank you, man. It was great, great to be here. So, you know, you have built a really successful business. What's something you've learned about yourself throughout the past year? Do you think about your approach to life, work, and your relationships have changed since the start of the pandemic? Yes, yeah, since the start of the pandemic, I think one of the things that obviously there's a lot of talk about the things that are challenges for people or obviously the, the you know, uncountable deaths that people have been experiencing in their families. That's been obviously a challenge. I actually lost my grandmother this year during the pandemic. I think she had experienced just being isolated and not, you know, not having the will to go on. It was a rough year, but I think one of the things that I found really is more or less a reset. It allowed me, and I think the people around me, I also observed this as well, to really start to focus back on the things that are of real importance, like family, being able to create wonderful experiences, and appreciating the little things, and not getting so caught up in mundane challenges that people have on a daily basis, and to really focus on the big picture. So for me, I also found it was an opportunity to find ways to explore some of my personal passions, to strike a, a better work-life balance, and spend quality time with my family. I'm really sorry to hear about your grandmother, and thank you for sharing. I think that makes a lot of sense. How about work? Tell us a bit about, you know, what does Yamli do and your journey to get Yamli to where, where you guys are today? Yeah, so just to give a little background on Yumly. So Yumly is one of the leading recipe discovery apps you'll find in the App Store online as well as in Google Play. It's an editor's choice award-winning app on all the platforms and it's usually 4.8 stars and people really love it. We've expanded beyond just being a discovery platform to being something what we're really trying to do is basically take away all the friction that people experience when it comes to cooking and making it a lot more enjoyable. But at the end of the day, really helping people become the best versions of themselves and our, you know, where we can help people is in the kitchen. It's food is one of the most personal things. It's, it's culture, it's health, it is, you know, emotion. It is, there's, you could have two people from the same exact family. They could be twin brothers or sisters with completely different food preferences. And then when it comes to goals oriented around food, there's, things for health, weight loss, people um, trying to optimize their bodies for athletic training, for longevity, et cetera. It's, there's so much, or just to nourish their family. There's so many goals that can be achieved through cooking and eating that, uh, 
that we're able to serve. So essentially what we're trying to do is help people become the best versions of themselves in the kitchen. So where Yumly started actually was something very, very different. If you think about kayak, it was more or less like a kayak for food. So you would come to this website, Yumly, and you could type in something like, let's say you're interested in cooking chicken that night. You could put in chicken, and then there was all these sliders to adjust you know, how sweet you wanted it, what you could check boxes for what cuisines. What we had done essentially is created a full genome for food, basically a global truth set of every ingredient in the world, and then used um, data science and AI to essentially analyze, structure, and understand every recipe on the web. And so this platform allowed you to sort through the millions of recipes on the web to find the right recipes for you, which was a really, really powerful tool. And that's when I joined Yumly was really at that inflection point. Um, Yumly was doing really well because it did really well from an SEO standpoint. So search engine optimization led to really good usage, but uh, it was more transactional. And so the idea that we tried to employ at that time was, this is very, very transactional, but we could serve people not just on this like one and done basis and much more of an ongoing relationship. And so what we did was we designed our mobile app experience around creating a, like a personalized feed of recipe suggestions. So it was moving more from this kayak for food to something that was much more like Discover Weekly with Spotify offers or Pandora at the time for food, where it would learn about your tastes and preferences around food. And then, you know, it, it would adapt over time and you could always open the app and we would know what you would want, what you should be making and what you should be eating based upon what we know about you. It's kind of a funny story because when I joined, we had a mobile app. Yumly had a mobile app that was about 80% done. Um, I joined and it was clear at the time that the app was more or less designed by doing some user research, but instead of trying to interpret and understand the needs of the end user, they essentially created an, an amalgamation of many different features into one app. So it felt a lot more like a Swiss army knife than than an app that could be very useful. And the reason why I say Swiss Army Knife is a Swiss Army Knife has many different features. Not one of them really, really stands out. It's more about the fact that you can do all these different things. But with apps, that's just generally not how successful apps work. If you think about Uber, it does one thing really well. If you think about, you know, when you want to listen to Spotify, it does one thing really well. There's one key flow through the app. So the former CEO went on vacation for three weeks, and a few of us decided that we were going to just, just get rid of the old app. We could not salvage it. And when the CEO came back, we, we explained that we had restarted with a new focus on really trying to distill down what we could offer that was unique, uniquely yumly that people were looking for. So I, was, I had to go in front of our board of directors to explain this, and I basically promised them that we would have by the time this app launched, we would be the, the number one recipe app in the app store, like in terms of app ranking, or they could fire me. But the idea was, we're not going to launch something that's not world class. That's not why we're here. We're not trying to offer something that's a me too solution. We didn't believe that the current state of the art was, was great in the category, which we were being compared to. And what we wanted to do is develop an app that really transcended the category completely. And so our inspiration came from apps well outside of our category. We looked at apps like, at the time, Beats by Dre, 
who which is now Apple Music, they had an incredible onboarding process that made it really fun for the service to learn about tastes in music. We, we employed some of the best practices there. We looked at discovery apps like at the time Wanalo, which was doing really interesting things about collecting into collecting many different interests into one spot. Companies like House, who had really revolutionized how people shop for for furniture and being able to create boards and, and ways to collect so that they could eventually take on a project. And then we looked at a lot of the list apps and tried to create the best shopping list app experience. And we're the first partners actually with Instacart. And we, we actually, what's interesting was we were the first two apps to ever deep link back and forth between the two apps. Yeah, I remember that. That was one of our first. Yeah, it was amazing. We, I used that example in a lot of spaces. Yeah, no, it's awesome. We worked with Branch, which was amazing. We worked, so it was, an, it was a really interesting thing because you have two apps, two different companies trying to talk to each other, going back and forth. In some cases, the apps were installed on the other, or, the, or they weren't. So there's a lot of edge cases. And based upon this, from what we've heard from Apple, is that's what influenced actually iOS 7 to have the back button to be able to navigate back and forth between apps. So apps didn't have to build all this directly into their app experience. So from there, we've, you know, we really shifted towards you know, kind of continuing to expand the offering. We got to a point in 2016 where we were very close to being acquired. And one of the big lessons learned there was you know, when you're about to be acquired, there's this desire to kind of put everything on hold to not break anything so that the acquirer doesn't have any new information to help them decide whether or not you know, to decide to walk away. Unfortunately, with you know, venture capital, and typically you have an 18-month time horizon to prove that their money was worth more than what they put in in terms of value appreciation, we had not done that. And so we had been about 10 months in, a little bit more, and we had an acquirer walk away. At that time, the former CEO had to step down for health reasons, and I took over in a situation where there was no clear path to getting us to an exit. We couldn't go fundraise because we had not proven enough. We couldn't, it was very, usually acquisitions can take multiple years or, you know, lots of conversation. So I ended up having to do layoffs and restructure the company, how we monetize, how we think about the product. And we got really lean and, you know, within six months, so we were able to drum up interest from Whirlpool Corporation. It was really good timing. And we were acquired May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, four years ago, which was, it was a very tumultuous journey through that acquisition, which is probably a topic for another day. But today what we've done is we've really moved forward with that desire to essentially help people be the best versions of themselves and using the kitchen as a, as a platform to do that. So we've launched a subscription service that allows people to cook alongside celebrity chefs. Unlike TV, it waits for you. So you go step-by-step step through. You can order the ingredients. It's very straightforward. And we're expanding that offering to include meal planning that's personalized, wow. the ability to do shopping lists, integrated with, with grocery, but essentially getting rid of those friction points that make the whole the, the cooking task and all the prep work arduous. And then we last year launched a connected thermometer that's for cooking proteins. So the idea is that you can cook the perfect results every time. You put the thermometer in, it will measure the internal temperature, the external temperature. So you would say, let's say you're 
want to cook salmon medium rare, you just put the thermometer in, you say medium rare. You don't even need to preheat the oven. You put it in, it tells you if you need to flip it, it tells you when to take it out, how long to let it rest. And so that very quickly, because of the acquisition with Whirlpool and our relationship has gotten into Lowe's, Home Depot, Best Buy stores, and, and it's a kind of expanding number of, of stores that are carrying it. And we're, our desire is to continue to launch hardware that enables people, that's at a great price point, so people can really feel really proud about themselves and what they're able to accomplish in, in the kitchen. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. It's a super interesting story. How do you think you know, COVID has changed the way people engage with food? I think a lot more people have went back to cooking. Have you seen that shift? And then how do you think going back to work and, and you know, as COVID, as we are at the tail end of COVID, do you think there's going to be a shift back? How do you think about all of that? How are you preparing? You're absolutely right. I think it was actually very interesting because there's a lot of human psychology in people's food preferences and actually their choices. One of the things that we've discovered over the years is you could have a health nut one day, a Chinese takeout the next day, someone who's eating McDonald's the next day, and then you know a healthy salad the following day. That People essentially have multiple personalities when it comes to food. So we actually saw the different emotions come out as the pandemic rolled, rolled out. So it was interesting. When the pandemic first started, it was more people trying to figure out what could they make with the things they had on hand. So, you know, they may have gone to the store and hoarded 20 cans of beans. They may have had like, you know, <laughs> two loaves of bread and, you know, canned pineapple. And we were supposed to, so people were trying to figure out, yeah, what, what can we do with these, what we have on hand? Because people were concerned about a food shortage or not being able to get, you know, they couldn't get toilet paper. So maybe there's no longer going to be strawberries. So they're going to get some frozen strawberries. As that fear started to dissipate, we saw this rise in people thinking about cooking as a pastime and an interest that they could do at home safely that would replace some of the other pastimes that they may have had elsewhere. So we saw a big rise in people thinking about, you know, bread making is a great example, or cooking things that were more elaborate. A lot of times, elaborate and not as healthy. So um, lots of breads, lots of desserts. We did see an uptick in recipe search that, you know, almost tripled at, at certain points. And it's, it's been interesting. It's even maintained momentum even now while people are getting back out into the world because people have kind of developed this as a habit. Now, then after the kind of the third stage of what we saw was after eating all this bread, and as we started to see that, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, maybe it's a combination with it being spring as well, we saw a shift much more towards healthier foods. So a lot less bread making and figuring out how to make pizza crust and, you know, thinking about how can I utilize healthier ingredients to get the COVID weight off. So it's pretty amazing. We see, since we have a lot of people using our platform, we see these shifts constantly. So we can tell based upon location and the weather in a specific area, we can see spikes in certain types of foods. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. But these ones were one, these are some of the trends that we saw pretty much across the whole United States and even throughout the world, um, which made it really interesting. In many ways, it kind of, you know, was as a way of really understanding how people were feeling at any given moment during the pandemic. Wow, that's that's really cool. And as you think now, I think, you know, you've you've 
probably gained a lot of new users and we've, we've talked a lot. I, I do this yeah. mobile growth handbook and I talk a lot about how growth has shifted between starting with acquisition growth now starts with retention. Any interesting retention strategies you're thinking to retain some of these, you know, these users that you guys have acquired over the past few years? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that people, I think a lot of companies, they think about the ongoing lifecycle messaging to their users as, well, that's marketing stuff. Like, you know, that's over in this area. And then there's the product people, they're building product and they're in this area. But I think in order to do it successfully, those need to be one and the same. The idea that lifecycle messaging is, you know, like basically by lifecycle messaging, I'm thinking about in-app notifications, push notifications, email notifications, in some cases, mail notifications, depending on what, what uh, type of service it is. That's all part of the product. If it's not considered part of the product, then there is a disconnect that you lose some of that nuance that should inform how you build your product and how you build retention and a, you know, a true loyal user base. A good example of this, like just one that, you know, comes to mind because had recently moved is when you sign up for, for Nextdoor, for example, you, you fill something out online, you get a card in the mail with a code. You type that code in to verify your address. Someone could say, well, that's, you know, like that's a, a mailer, that's the marketing department. And, but that's actually part of the product. That's actually very core to what they do, where it's, that's how they verify you live in a particular area. Now, I think for us, we are, you know, I think we've been very historically, very heavily oriented towards acquisition. That was where we were really good. We had very good SEO, which would drive people both onto our website. We'd use email to upsell into mobile apps. We would use our mobile app, the app quality in trying to build a great experience as our mechanism for retention. But I think at this point, we're focusing a lot more on really trying to understand where the user is in a journey versus thinking about, well, we're just trying to help this one particular need, but thinking about it more as a journey and then understanding where the person is in that journey and then messaging them the right way on the right platform to meet their needs in that given moment. Because you could, you know, in some cases, companies could be devoid of those messages, but in other cases, they're providing the wrong information at the wrong time. It's not relevant. So like, for example, if I got a push notification from, from Yumly saying like, hey, we see you have Moscow Mule recipe, you know, maybe you should consider this. And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's Monday morning. That's, that's probably not the, the right time. Or to suggest that I create a meal plan when I already have a meal plan created to order and I just order my ingredients, probably a bad time to say, hey, you should set up your meal plan. So I think it's kind of important to kind of like have that really, really dialed and ideally have a cross-functional team where you have the people who are your marketers and your writers who are thinking about that uh, retention, you know, the messaging along and how it's getting to the user and when alongside of the product folks that are, that are building it and the engineers who are kind of determining the logic and finding the right tools to be able to support that as well. That's awesome. I love, I love those. Uh, I love that. So when you think back, I think let's shift gear a bit to your like career and how you got to where you are today. For those of our listeners, actually, I know Brian since my very early days when I was at Stanford Design School. And I think he was there 
when I decided to start a company because one of our professors, Michael Deering, said that he thought I could. So you've had, like, how did you kind of get from, talk about like how you got to where you are today. What are like some decisions you made in your career to get to be, you know, in a CEO position? Yeah, so I didn't set out to be a CEO or to run a, a tech company by any means. I think I grew up and I didn't, I was not surrounded by any entrepreneurship at all. My dad was a very successful businessman, but he worked his way up from the bottom at Deloitte Consulting to eventually running a majority of their business um, and was on the board of directors for consulting and ran the US and China and had these really big jobs. But when I looked at what he did and the amount he had to travel and this kind of like corporate ladder type situation, and then I think also watching the movie Office Space, I just thought, this is not really my path. I don't know if I could do this. This is just... At the same time, I found myself always creating things. People would say like, oh, Brian's working on some new scheme. But the schemes were typically like new business ideas. Or I'd find something and like figure out how to break it. Like, for example, when affiliate programs first got launched on the web, I figured out a way to have people essentially fill out a form to get an affiliate rate from insurance companies. They pay you for leads. If someone filled out a form, you get 20 bucks. Well, I would then find people that were interested. I would find people that were interested in insurance who also could give feedback on the form. And I'd say, I'm looking for people interested in insurance. Could you feedback on the form? You get $2. And so I used Mechanical Turk and just connected two things together. And it would just start to generate money. So that was kind of like a, some people call the scheme. Um, I also did arbitrage where I would take free auctions and use CNET at the time because people didn't know how to do comparison shopping online and advertise things for like, let's say the midpoint of price on CNET for an item, make sure that the inventory was decent on the low end and then transact and make that spread on all these free auctions. So I automated that, automated ticket order, uh, ordering from to order tickets faster than anyone on Ticketmaster. That's probably why they have all these CAPTCHA things and all these security things to prevent people from doing it. But I just found myself kind of hacking things and also designing things as well. So I just found myself, for some reason, building a light-up modular dance floor in the backyard. My parents thought I was nuts. I carried 600 pounds of broken into 17 pieces to make this like dance floor in the backyard. I didn't know why I was building things. So when I sold my, I started a software company in college, which was doing kind of B2C, like white label e-commerce platform, content management, sold that company and saw this video on this company called IDEO, which, uh, you know, David Kelly, who runs the Stanford program, master's program in design, I'm like, wow, you can combine like this kind of like, kind of this kind of mentality with design and learned about entrepreneurship. So I really set my sights to attend Stanford University, ended up being rejected twice uh, and told I was never accepted by a professor there, but luckily was able to sneak in through the engineering department into this program and really focused my time on you know, taking design, user-centered design, and tying it with really scrappy ideas to launch new businesses. So I actually started a company while in my master's program. It's called Go Laces. I remember. Yeah. I was going to mention that. I was like, you were doing those laces things. Yeah. 
So it, that got acquired by Crocs, the shoe company. Um, unfortunately, it never launched from them, so I now own the patent rights again. Um, I launched a sustainable fabric company, Timbuktu licensed, and joined IDEO actually as entrepreneur in residence to actually take the design thinking methodology and launch new businesses. But unfortunately, that was 2009, and new business launches were not the easiest thing to do, but managed to raise some money around an idea, taking this idea that um, it's kind of before machine learning and data, you know, AI was really a big topic. But the idea was, can we take the smarts of a dietitian and you could carry around that with your phone to basically eliminate the confusion in the supermarket? So you could scan any product barcode and it would tell you how healthy it was for you specifically. And then a simple trade up of something slightly better that you can try. So help launch that company. It was one of the co-founders of that company. And, you know, um, over its lifespan, it was eventually acquired and I joined Yumly to lead the mobile development and eventually took over as CEO, but also using AI and machine learning to essentially, you know, understand every recipe in the world. We use computer vision so you could aim your phone at a bunch of ingredients. So for those who watch Silicon Valley and know about hot dog, no hot dog, it's an app that could basically detect if a hot dog's there which is a tough problem, uh, computer vision problem. We try to do it for all ingredients. And then to be, we've launched these subscription services and hardware. It's been, it's been a fun ride. And then, you know, for me, I've also enjoyed, my passion is with startups. So helped a good friend of mine start a company called Diamond MMA, which makes the, for cage fighters in the UFC, the actual groin protection that works. And so I've helped a bunch of these small product companies get off the ground because to me, it's really great building companies and I really enjoy that. But to me, the thing that's the most gratifying is to help build entrepreneurs and to be there along the way and help people ideally learn from their own mistakes, but also learn from a lot of the mistakes that I made. So there's been a ton of failure so that they don't have to make those mistakes. And then also to continue to inspire folks to keep on pushing, because I know you've experienced this yourself, Mata. Like, it's crazy. It's bumpy. There's times where there is, at any given moment, there could be an existential threat that can wipe out the company. And that can happen daily for a period of time. And it's really about whether, not whether or not that's going to happen. It's really about having the mindset to be able to persevere and be flexible through that in order to be able to, to succeed. It's really generally the reasons why a lot of companies succeed is they just lasted long enough. They just got, they weathered a storm versus burning out too fast or burning through money too fast. It's like the infinite game. Simon Sinek was one of my favorite books. And he says that if you have a mission, there's no like winning. The only point is to stay in the game and you just keep going after your infinite mission. The only people, yeah. the losers of the infinite game are the people who drop out. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we've seen that in, in our space. You know, there's been a lot of like recipe startups and then also there's a lot of these food hardware startups. I actually, in most cases, I don't blame the entrepreneurs. It's just, there's been so few examples of successful companies, it's really hard to attract investors. So I actually give the, these companies a lot of credit because the category is a lot more nascent than if you went into like, you wanted to launch a finance app where there's a lot more proven winners. There just hasn't been a breakout billion dollar recipe app company 
or there hasn't been a breakout food hardware, you know, like cooking hardware company, they've all generally run out of time. Mm -hmm. And so we've kind of luckily with a partnership with Whirlpool, we can now have a longer focal length and develop these things and just play that long game that you're talking about, like the infinite game and get there by just continuing to try to do the right thing and just, you know, kind of chipping away at it. I think a little bit more of a manageable pace. That's great. So what piece of advice, you know, you talked a lot about earlier failures, yeah. what piece of advice would you give a younger version of yourself? I think one of the things that I learned the hard way is, and I think it may sound a bit cliche, but I know there's this desire to be, you know, there's this kind of startup mentality that's like, it's about input. If I work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, I could will myself to success. And that is, could be true. It's not, an, it's not that it's a false statement. The thing is, I would say that you can get away with that for a period of time, but your body keeps score. Your mental health keeps score, even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. And what I've learned over time is instead of getting so focused on the success or failure of my company and it becoming like a Siamese twin that's grafted to me where it's success and failure is my success or failure as a human being. What I've learned is to try to find other activities that I can use to both help define who I am more holistically and also to take my mind off of work because sometimes you can only squeeze the sponge so much and you need it to like let it fill back up so you can get that inspiration again. So for me, I went through a journey of trying to figure out what those things are. So for me, I discovered some of them are maybe like aha ones are like very obvious, but some of them are not. So for me, I got back into painting. And so I'm represented by two galleries now and oil painting, but that doesn't work all the time. Sometimes that's very stressful. So I've also have gotten into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I think is probably one of the best things to get into primarily because you cannot think about what's happening at work when you're, you know, intertwined with someone. It's a great uh, martial art because there's no striking. It's the most cerebral martial art. And it's all about, it's like playing chess with someone physically. So it's like a mental challenge. It's a physical challenge. And it also teaches you how to be relaxed in very difficult situations. So for me, an example of that is someone has their legs wrapped around my waist, they're on my back, and they're choking me to the point where I could pass out. And figuring out, okay, how to stay calm in that situation, how to think through it pragmatically, like what is step one in this situation? So I slide my hand under my arm. What's step two? I'm going to just gently push this, but staying extremely relaxed, which is so counterintuitive. And then what I've learned is that can be applied to a situation. I had a situation, I don't want to say which company, where I was just verbally abused by the board of directors. It was, it was horrible. But I was able to maintain my composure because at any point of what I, what I had to take on, I always thought, you know what, it's, this is not as bad as like getting choked <laughs> or feeling like someone could you know, dislocate a shoulder. And so that was something that and I would always leave very relaxed. And then the one that's very unobvious, but I think is an amazing one, is I got into 
DJ mixing, which also is an activity where, you know, you can't really have your mind on other things. You can get, and it's, to me, for me, it's one of the fastest ways to get into that alpha state where you're kind of, you're, it's kind of like this meditative state. I know for others, it's yoga, it's meditation. For me, it's these things. I think everyone has their unique, you know, things. It's just to go and try a bunch of these and then try to, you know, try it a few times, be deliberate about saying like, how did that make me feel? Like for me, I, I knew like weightlifting, I feel 80% better, but to do weightlifting took 50% of the, you know, took some effort. DJing takes 10% of the effort. I get 90%. Jiu-jitsu, 90% of the effort, 100% feel better. You know, uh, painting is usually like 90% effort, 40%. Like it, and just trying to measure that over time so that you're ideally finding this balance for yourself. And usually it's not one activity because if you have a combination of a few of these activities, you can always put one on hold and it's fresh waiting for you when it, when it comes back. So I think that's probably the thing. And I think the other one is, I think, as you pointed out before, this idea that even this idea that, you know, like the success or failure of you as per being this one company or the thing you're working on in that moment, that's not what's going to define you. Obviously, if you're successful, the nice thing is it can define you and that's great. But a failure doesn't necessarily define you. And to think about it is that even if your company fails, you're playing the long game and it's you're building yourself as an entrepreneur. You're building yourself as a person and you've now gained this level, this additional level of experience that's going to make you that much more prepared for your next, next experience. And so for me, I, I try to take those moments of failure and reflect and just write down what I learned. And so by just the act of writing down what I learned, it's no longer a loss. You know, it's, I've done so many times, like, I'm like, okay, that was a terrible idea. I shouldn't have done that. Now my garage is filled with a bunch of something I ordered way too much of, <laughs> whatever it is, if it's a physical product. But yeah, again, like thinking about it is kind of, this is a, it's a journey no matter what, which was very tough for me for a very long time where I just, it was success at all costs. Well, this is really interesting. I think as we get to the end, I'd like to ask three more like fun questions. Sure. To get the audience to get to know you better. Okay, question number one. If you had to delete all the apps you had on your phone and you could only keep one, which app would you keep? Um, this is probably unexpected. For me, I would keep Reddit. But I think Reddit is an incredible app. I use Reddit in my daily life way more than the average person because I really enjoy all these subcultures and groups and being able to participate in conversation. Those range from... What's your favorite subreddit? I love accident. Oh, there's a few, but one is accidentally Renaissance, where people who take photos that accidentally look like Renaissance paintings. I like one that's you know there's there's dogs. One, the one I actually probably like the best is it's a new thing that's opened up called Reddit Public Access Network, where anyone can live stream. And fairly recently, I had 150,000 people join a live stream of me DJing in my bedroom. And what I have found is now I will live stream every time I'm practicing because the audience on Reddit is very forgiving and it forces me to not mess up. It always, there's always some, I'm under some constraints. 
And I've really enjoyed that. It's been a great way to also meet people. I've met fellow artists through there, both musicians. Um, I met a guy who's, his name's Sabari. He's in India. He's a 20-year-old boy in India who does these amazing drawings of different emotions embodied in, in drawings. So one is overthinking. One is uh, burnout. One is uh, anxiety. So I actually was so thrilled with his work, I ended up purchasing the whole series for my own collection because it really resonated so much with me. And I, I mean, obviously love to go on Wall Street bets, which I know is, is, is a fun one that's very entertaining to see what the latest meme stock or meme uh, cryptocurrency is just for entertainment purposes. So I really like that. I like kind of that it has this kind of like, you know, kind of, kind of rough around the edges kind of feel to it, um, which is a nice departure from, I think, a lot of other apps. And I think people generally go on there to be good and have a good time. Um, there's obviously some exceptions, but generally speaking, you know, people will post a photo of their weight loss journeys and people will be on there to be encouraging and not insulting. And I think it brings out a lot of virtue and some wholesomeness that is missed up elsewhere. That's cool. I use Reddit mostly for my fantasy nerding out. Oh yeah, there's people. so many. <laughs> I, all my, like I, there's like YA lit and fantasy and I spend a lot of time there. Okay, if you had an app, talk to one animal and one animal alone, what animal would you pick? Well, I think I would definitely want, want an app where I could speak to dogs. I'm a dog person, so sorry, cat people. I know you're a dog person as well. And I always just wonder what they're, they're thinking, because I know we try to personify it. I know they don't have a concept of time. The one thing I've learned from them is they live in the moment. And that it's like if you have trouble living in a moment, get a dog and just observe what they're doing because they're always living in the moment. And I'd love to hear what they would have to say about living in the moment because that's, you know, it's actually pretty insightful. In some ways, they're more evolved than us as humans. You know, they really, they have unconditional love. They live in the moment. You know, they're not worried about the past. They're not really worried about the future. And they, so in some ways, they're, you know, they're, they're very balanced creatures and it's, it'd be great to understand and learn from from their wisdom. <laughs> I like that. That would probably be my pick as well. Okay, and lastly, what's one unlikely app we could find on your phone? I would say one that's probably unlikely if you didn't know me from this conversation is I have this app called DJM, which allows you to like very uh, record very very high quality streams from DJ equipment, so you can post on SoundCloud, Mixcloud, Spotify, etc. And I found it, it's a very useful tool if you have Pioneer equipment. I had found that it was a, a passion of mine to, I basically kept breaking the equipment I had by using it. So I ended up just eventually getting the festival level of equipment that's very durable. And it's a nice way to very easily record. And I, I would say probably that, and probably the other one would be Pokemon Go. I really like that app. I have a son named Tyler. And we go on walks together and we use it as a way to exercise, but also as a way to connect because it kind of is a cross-generational activity. And cool. it's really nice to, yeah, to be able to connect, even though it's, we're obviously a generation apart. Cool. Well, thank you, Brian. This was awesome. I feel I learned a lot and uh, we really appreciate having you as a guest today on our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I obviously very much admire you and what you've been able to accomplish as well. It's amazing to see what you've done with Branch and the amazing team you've built and working in taking on a challenge 
that is not an average run-in-the-mill challenge. So I, I'm honored to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for including me. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.